Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools to grow and change. I'm glad you joined us today. You know, it seems more and more that we live in times of uncertainty, and there is a lot happening all around us in the world today. Yet, despite our challenges, I am so optimistic about what the future holds for you and for me. And with all the disruption in our world, I hope this podcast can contribute to the good in your day. And I hope today that you hear something that can help you get a better view of your place in the world and how you can live to your potential. And when you're done listening today, if you find some good ideas here, be sure to share this podcast with a friend. It just may be what they need in their life today. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to answer this question. Isn't it time? Isn't it time to take your life back? You know, each year in the month of April, tens of thousands of people from all over the world descend on the Shawmut Peninsula, which is the greater Boston area. Their purpose? To run and participate in the Boston Marathon. About 40,000 applicants submit their applications each year to run the marathon. Now, to qualify, you must run a qualifying time in a previous marathon and submit proof of that time to the Boston committee. For example, if you're a 40-year-old man, your qualifying time is three hours and 10 minutes. Of all the people who enter marathons each year, only 10% have times that qualify them for the Boston Marathon. So the marathon attracts the best of the best. Now, only about 30,000 runners who apply get accepted. That means 10,000 get rejected. Why rejected? Well, the course capacity is capped at 30,000, and you're accepted based on your time. So even though the qualifying time for a 40-year-old male is three hours and 10 minutes, the actual time needed to get in is seven minutes and 47 seconds faster. So you actually need a time of three hours and two minutes to qualify. Now, race day is an experience unto itself. Runners start boarding buses at 5.30 a.m. for a 10 a.m. start. And it takes a lot of Boston area school buses to transport so many people to the start line from downtown Boston hotels. The start is done in stages. So runners line up in corrals like cattle, according to their times with the faster times leaving first. At the start of the race, there's excitement in the air. There's some fear, camaraderie, music is playing, and runners who have worked months and years to reach their goal have all come together into one place. There, standing in the cold April weather, 30,000 runners huddle, trying to stay warm, waiting for several hours for the race to start, in which they'll feel pain and fatigue like they've never felt before, or at least in a long time. Now, 500,000 spectators line the route and gather at the finish line to cheer on a brother, a sister, a friend, or to just watch runners reaching their goals. One magical place on the course is called Scream Tunnel. As the runners pass Wellesley College, a private women's school, thousands of young women line the course for about a quarter of a mile, and they motivate the runners by screaming cheers, hollering encouragement, high-fiving, and even kissing the runners as they go by. I can tell you from personal experience, when you're tired and hurting, when you run past Wellesley, you find a bounce in your step and a bit of energy from the encouragement. The race enters Boston on historic Beacon Street and then turns to finish by running down Boylston Street near Copley Square. 
and the Boston Marathon is always run on Patriot's Day, the day celebrating the courage of the Minutemen and early battles of the Revolutionary War. And on this day, the Red Sox usually play a home game in the early afternoon, and downtown is buzzing with celebration, and the marathon finish line is magical. Whenever I run a marathon, I like to stick around the finish line after I'm done. Why? Because every person crossing that finish line has a story. Someone is running for a lost family member. Someone started running to lose 60 pounds and just couldn't stop. Someone else worked for years and years running one marathon after another, trying to get a Boston qualifying time, and they finally made it. And the list goes on. Regardless of their reason, most runners spent the prior year training in the early morning hours, five to seven days a week, running when everyone else is home sleeping. Yes, the finish line is an inspiring place to be. Well, the finish line on April 20th, 2015 at the Boston Marathon was especially inspiring. Crossing the finish line on that day was Rebecca, who finished wearing a Rebecca Strong t-shirt. Her bib number was number 31,598. She was not there to run the full marathon. She was accepted, by exception, by the race committee and would only run the last 5K of the race. But for her, this was a marathon with as much pain and needed training as anyone running that day. You see, two years earlier at the finish line at the Boston Marathon, Rebecca and her five-year-old son Noah were watching the runners finish the race. It was Rebecca's first time in Boston, and she was there celebrating her birthday. She was a single mom and thrilled to be there, filling the hopeful and inspiring air of the marathon. It was 2.49 in the afternoon, and while Rebecca was enthralled watching the runners, her son Noah was tired and a bit bored. So Rebecca sat him down on the sidewalk at her feet. He used her legs as a backrest. Unbeknownst to Rebecca and the thousands of others gathered on Boylston Street that day, was that two brothers from Boston had planted two bombs in pressure cookers in the crowd. The pressure cookers were filled with nails, steel balls, and fragments intended to do horrific damage when released. And these fragments would blast out horizontally a few feet off the ground. And when the bomb exploded, it did so only a few feet from Rebecca and Noah. She said, the blast wave hit like a freight train. All of a sudden, I found myself thrown back, sprawled on the ground, like something out of a movie. She didn't know what had happened, and there was a deafening clang reverberating in her head. Well, a nasty smoke and smell filled the air. She tried to get up to move, but her legs wouldn't work. She looked down and saw that she was covered in blood. Pieces of her own leg and leg bones were scattered around her. She looked around and saw the carnage. People had lost limbs and, like her, were in a state of disbelief. People were running away and some people on the ground weren't moving at all. She said random body parts were strewn amongst the bodies. What she soon remembered was that five-year-old Noah had been sitting at her feet, which were now shredded. What had happened to Noah? Was he alive? She couldn't see him anywhere. Just then she heard a second bomb explode. And the pandemonium ensued as people and race officials scrambled to protect and care for the victims. Well, Rebecca started to scream for Noah, but everyone around her was injured just like she was, and there was no one to help her. The pain was extreme. 
Smoke filled her eyes, and she wanted to get up and find Noah, but her legs couldn't respond. And she knew she was in danger of bleeding out and dying, but the thought of what could have happened to Noah was all-consuming. Then she noticed her clothes were on fire. And just then, a first responder found her, put the fire out, and told her he would take care of her. She knew this was a risk for him, knowing there could be a third bomb that exploded any time. Just then, she heard, Mommy, Mommy, and it was Noah's voice. She twisted her head up and to the side, and there was Noah behind her. She reached out her arm to reach him, but when she did, she saw her arm, and in her words, I saw that my left hand was shattered with bones sticking in all directions. The skin had peeled back all the way to my wrist. Well, a police officer came and carried Noah away. His leg was bleeding, but he looked mostly uninjured. She couldn't understand how her legs could be shredded, but Noah was mostly intact. And she was surprised and so grateful he was alive. The next question that came to her mind was who would care for Noah after she died? Because her wounds were so horrific, she was certain she was going to die. Just then, a medical tech arrived and yelled, We need to get her off the street or she will die here. She was lifted up onto a gurney, and the pain shot intensely through her body. As they put her in the ambulance, she heard the tech say over the radio, We have an amputee. During the ambulance ride, her pain level rose to an obscene level. Well, in the hospital, the doctor spent hours trying to save her hand and legs. It would take weeks and multiple surgeries to locate and remove all the metal pieces lodged inside Rebecca's body. What she learned later, it was her legs that had saved Noah's life. Her legs took the brunt of the blast and shrapnel. Well, on day six in the hospital, Noah came to visit, being pulled in the little red wagon because he couldn't walk because of the stitches in his leg. And both mom and son cried and laughed together. Noah was wearing an FBI jacket. On the way to visit his mom, as they got off the elevator, there was an FBI agent stationed there. And when he learned Noah was a bombing victim, he took off his jacket and gave it to Noah. Rebecca said, my heart felt like a helium balloon that had just drifted up to the ceiling. Well, over the next weeks and months, a fixator held her shattered legs in place, and it wasn't clear whether she would be able to keep her legs. And after 17 surgeries on her more damaged left leg, she said, After the 17th surgery, I realized how silly it was to be holding on to something that was only holding me back from getting on with my life. Well, as I read and thought about Rebecca's story, this one statement by Rebecca has had a profound effect on my thinking and caused me to ask the question, do we hold on to things in our lives that we want to keep that may be good or not good, but we know in fact are holding us back from getting on with our life? We all have these things, you know. Perhaps it's a relationship or a habit, a job, an attitude, or something that has happened that may be defining us from our past. We hold on to these types of things for a number of reasons. Perhaps we're afraid of what we'll have to do if we let go. But Rebecca's right. When you turn from what you've done or had or have to what is before you in your life, you find tremendous strength. Well, Rebecca did lose her leg. And when she woke up after her surgery, she felt a new power. Her life, she said, wasn't in limbo anymore. Months later, she would be fitted for a prosthesis. Now, the problem with the prosthesis is that your leg swells, and it's painful, and your leg blisters, and it's difficult to walk, let alone run, 
on a prosthesis. To help her learn to live with an artificial leg, she set a goal to run the 2015 Boston Marathon. She started to train five days a week. And on the day of the race, she made a post on Facebook and it said this, this is the day I take my life back. And she has. She's gone on to write a book with that same title and set up a foundation to help others do the same. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes we have to lose to gain. Sometimes you have to give up to get up. And every time you have to purposefully act to take your life back. Rebecca was asked to testify at the trial of the Boston bomber. And at his sentencing, she spoke. Here's what she said, speaking directly to him. When someone intends something for evil, somehow, in some way, it ends up for good. You tried to destroy us, but you only made us stronger. And if your eyes would only meet mine for just one second, you would see what you blew up really did blow up. Because now you have given me and the other survivors a tremendous platform to help others and essentially do our part in changing the world for better. So yes, you did take part of me. Congratulations, you now have a leg up, literally. But in so many ways, you saved my life. Because now I am so much more appreciative of every new day I'm given. And now I get to hug my son even tighter than before. And while you're sitting in solitary confinement, I will be enjoying everything this beautiful world has to offer. Sincerely, someone you shouldn't have messed with. So, taking a lesson from Rebecca, here is the question of the day. Isn't it time? Isn't it time to take your life back? Whatever's been pestering, persecuting, or hindering you, isn't it time to say goodbye and take back what you can become? to take back what's yours, what you've been destined to do and be, it's time. Perhaps you've been struggling as a parent. The days go by with good intentions about structuring the right kind of environment for your kids. And it's tough because you may even be struggling a bit with your own sense of purpose and worth. And in this state, it's hard to be at your best. And it may be time to take your life back a bit and put structure back into your family's day. You know, my mom, who recently passed away, knew how to do this. You see, she didn't want to have housework interfere with her day. So each morning when we were growing up, she woke us kids up at the same early time each day. And after breakfast, we had 45 minutes for chores before we got ready for school. My dad and the kids all had an assignment chart. And it took some doing. But by the time we left for school, the floor was vacuumed, rooms cleaned, laundry started, before the day even got going. This freed her up to do other things in her day, and it taught her children how to work. You see, then she could spend her day on the things that gave her an infusion of self-worth and joy. She took her life back. Perhaps you're building a business, and the thoughts of I should have or I need to plague your day. Each day, as you don't take your life back and don't do the small things on time, or as you plan, soon your energy and excitement are whittled away by the guilt of what you didn't do. Isn't it time to take your life back? Do the hard things when it's time, and soon you'll be in the habit. And your life, yourself, your self-worth will return. 
not just because you're doing what you said you would do, but also because you're having more success because you're doing what is necessary to grow your business. This means you may lose a few things, idle time, some social media perusing, and the willingness to procrastinate might be a few. It also means you may gain a few things, energy, satisfaction, and a sense of you being remarkable. Isn't it time to feel remarkable again? So, if there is great good to be gained by taking your life back, then how can we do it? And do it realistically and, yes, easily. Well, we take a lesson from Boston Marathon finisher two years after Rebecca ran the Boston race, Catherine Switzer. At age 70, Switzer stood at the starting block of the Boston Marathon wearing the same number she wore 50 years earlier when she ran the marathon for the first time. You see, up until 1967, the Boston Marathon had always been a men's race. No woman had ever competed officially in the race. But Catherine loved to run. She was coached by Arnie Briggs, a coach at Syracuse University. At the time, it was widely perceived that it was objectionable for women to participate in sports because they looked like they were working hard and they were sweating. Well, Briggs didn't think a woman could run the long distance, but Switzer argued with him. She told him the prior year, a woman named Bobby Gibb hid in the bushes after the start and ran in a hoodie not to be recognized after she was disqualified for being a woman. Briggs told Catherine she'd have to prove it on the practice track, and she did. She trained and worked and finally ran a marathon plus an extra five miles to prove to her coach that she could run the distance. You see, we all want to run the race, but few of us want to pay the price necessary to really run. And in Catherine's case, she proved her ability in training by herself with no one watching. And in our case, we too prove our abilities in similar ways by doing what's necessary to take our life back in running our life each day. Well, on April 19th, 1967, 600 marathoners stood at the start line in cold, breezy conditions. Catherine had registered under the name KV Switzer so as not to make her gender obvious. At the start line, the other runners were happy to see her and supportive of her. But two miles into the race, everything changed. A bus with race officials came up beside her, and in the bus was race co-director Jack Semple. The journalists on the bus were saying, Jack, you've got a girl in your race. Well, he lost his temper, jumped out of the bus, and started running after Catherine in his suit and tie. He yelled, get the heck out of my race and give me those numbers. And he started to pull her bib numbers off her shirt. But in came her boyfriend, Tom Miller, who had been running alongside Switzer. He was a football player, weighed 235 pounds, and he just put a shoulder into Jack Semple and sent him flying to the side of the road. Well, Catherine, who was only 20, couldn't understand why Semple was so angry. And instead of giving away whatever power he wanted to take from her, Catherine took her power back and told her coach right then during the race, I'm going to finish this race on my hands and knees if I have to. And she did finish, but not on her hands and knees. And when the journalist asked her about why she ran, she simply said, we'll be back, meaning women, and we'll be back again and again. Well, Catherine changed marathoning. 
She took back for women the rights they should have had all along. Six years later, at the start of a marathon, Switzer came face to face with Semple. But this time, Semple welcomed her. And throughout their life, they were asked to do many interviews together. From that point forward, they both fought for women in running. Well, Switzer would go on to win the New York City Marathon in 1974. But at the age of 70, a remarkable age to run a marathon by any stretch, she ran a four-hour, 44-minute Boston Marathon, which is only 24 minutes slower than her first Boston race at the age of 20. So, lesson one, sometimes, like Switzer did, you have to prove you can run the race. And that proof is in your daily run. Run your day, and it will not run you. It's such a simple principle, but so seldomly followed. So let me ask you, do you schedule your activities each day? Do you have a clear plan for each day? What time will you start each activity, and how long will it take you, and what will the results be? This is such a basic thing, and if you don't do this, start again. Take your life back. Watch what happens when you do this simple thing. For example, what time will you get up? What will you read or listen to during your inspiration time? During your workout, what will you do to reach your fitness goals? When you start your business work, what will you do? For how long? What will you get done? When you're with your kids, what's your plan? Now, this might seem like too much to plan everything, but really, it only takes a few minutes to plan each day and it yields such tremendous results. Jim Rohn famously said, if you don't design your own life plan, chances are you'll fall into someone else's plan. And guess what they have planned for you? Not much. And here's something I've discovered. When I plan my day, my feelings about myself and my actions are so much more positive. Your self-esteem and worth will rise if you'll follow the simple habit. Now, remember, the title of this podcast is, Isn't It Time? Yes, it implies, isn't it time to get going, right? To finally get going. But it's also a question of, isn't it time? Isn't time the thing in your life that really matters? And isn't it the proper use of time that does in fact give you your life back? The answer is a resounding yes. As Miles Davis put it, time isn't the main thing. It's the only thing. And for many of us, Time is what we want most, but we use worst. Next, to take your life back, we can take our life out of someone else's hands and put it in our hands. You know, when it comes to long-distance running, there is a group of runners so incredible, so unique, that you rarely hear about them. They are truly remarkable, and they are ultra-marathoners. Now, ultra-running is running at distances longer than a marathon. And when you talk about ultra running, you have to talk about Camille Heron. When Camille was 17, her family became homeless when their house was destroyed in an Oklahoma tornado. And this had such a tremendous impact on her. This tornado was something she couldn't control. And she didn't know how to recover from her experience. But instinctively, she started to run. She said it was a way to celebrate the fact that they had survived and a way to say back to the world, I can control this. I can control what I do that I run. Well, Camille holds about every record in ultra running. She has the fastest 50-mile race at 5 hours and 38 minutes, the fastest 100 miles on the road and track 
the most miles run in 12 hours and 24 hours. And in 24 hours on the track, she ran 162 miles. Most recently, at the age of 40, Camille put everything she had into breaking the 100-mile record. And when she crossed the line of the 100-mile race in Henderson, Nevada, she thought she had, in fact, broken the record. She had run 100 miles in 12 hours and 41 minutes. But eight months later, the race officials declared her time ineligible because the course managers had slightly changed the course from the one certified. Now, if this was you, how would you react? After training and preparing for setting the record, only to have your race disqualified for something entirely out of your control? Well, Camille reacted just like she did as a 17-year-old when her family lost a house in a tornado. She just went out and ran again. She said she was disappointed with the result, but will just have to run again. That's the thing, isn't it? Things come along in life that may be out of our control, but we can choose how we react. We can take our life out of someone else's control and place it in our control. To do this, first, decide what taking control means to you. For example, there may be some ways in which your health is impacted beyond your control. I know for me, my injuries have caused a back condition, which means I'm in pain a lot. But within my control is how I mitigate and react to this. You know, if I keep my weight off, work on flexibility, stay active, and don't sit too much, I can manage my pain. That's in my control. And you know what? All of those things are good in other areas of my life as well. So you may not have your health in every way you want, but much of your health is still in your control. You may not be able to control your entire family situation, but much of what you do and how you react is within your control. So decide what taking control means to you. Now, the reason it's important to decide this is that once you can identify what you can take control of and make plans for those things, you'll find a greater sense of control in your life over things that you have thought you couldn't control. Next, you and I can get out of our own way. It happens, doesn't it? We set a goal for the new year or make a decision and get in our own way. Well, how do we do that? Well, we can't forgive others. We hang on to a relationship. We say yes when we should say no. We hold a grudge. We play it safe. We give in to a habit and we don't ask for what we need are just a few reasons. But there are a few really good things that you can do to get out of your own way. The first and perhaps most impactful is to surround yourself with the right people. Now, I go to church, not because I'm the most spiritual person in the world, but it is a deliberate attempt on my part to surround myself with good people. These people have a proximate effect on me, meaning their faith, their goodness, their mindset rubs off on me. And this has more impact on me and may have on you than you think. You can do the same. So where are you going in your life where you meet good people? This is a huge way to take your life back, and it's an easy way. Here's another simple way to get out of your own way. Share the load. You see, too often we try to do everything, and as a result, we don't do much very well. In families, your children can do more than you think. They can learn to work and take responsibility for what happens in your house. In your business, share the load. 
people who are involved stay involved. And in my experience, people on a team want to help the team prosper and do their part. Last, after you lose or miss or make a mistake, learn from it and move on. It is normal and natural to revisit mistakes or losses over and over again. But when we do and those thought patterns become habit, it can get in the way of other more helpful thinking. So how do you move on? Well, in professional athletics, teams hire sports psychologists and spend a lot of money helping athletes learn to move on after a bad play. Mentally tough people have very short memories. You see, on the field, if you're still upset about the last play, your attention is divided as you move forward and you can't focus fully on what's before you. So to help, athletes are encouraged to picture a reset button, literally, like the reset on your computer, but much faster. Clear the image, focused on the next move. And how do the athletes do this? Well, they practice. And they practice hitting the reset button and moving on to the next play and what's next in practice so that when they get to the game, they can hit the reset button and it works. And this ability to direct your thinking can become habit. The truth is, you can control your effort, learn from the past, improve, let go of the past, focus on what's in front of you, focus on your strengths, and choose to get out of your own way. You're destined to become something remarkable. Isn't it time? Isn't it time to take your life back? Well, as we end today, remember Rebecca Gregory. You get to choose how you will respond. You get to decide if you'll take your life back from uncontrollable situations, from the opinion of others, and from your past. Like Catherine Switzer, you can prove to yourself and others that you are ready to run forward with a new view, a new attitude, and reach those goals you set this year. Don't let anyone stop you from your race or your future. You're on the marathon course for a reason, and that is to direct your run, your life, to your desired end. And like Camille, even if you've run 100 miles and fall short, get back in the race and take your life back on the terms you want. Most of all, thanks for being here today. And don't forget to share this podcast with a friend and join us next week for another podcast as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become.